Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Sometimes the titles of books are fanciful, sometimes they are they reflect a degree of wishful thinking. Authors think highly of themselves and they use their titles to reflect what they'd like to make of their life. But my guest today has a title of a book which I think very fair, fairly summarizes her life and her bravery. Maria Ressa, everybody knows her of course, she won the Nobel Prize for Peace. And she has a book, Maria and I are long-time friends, but we've never talked about her book. And her book is entitled, How to Stand Up to a Dictator, The Fight for Our Future. And in contrast to so many other people around the world, Maria really has stood up to a dictator and won. So Maria, how, how do we stand up to a dictator? Values. I mean, like, it's funny because the, the question everyone always asks at the worst of times is, uh, where do you find courage? But isn't courage isn't something that you pluck, right? And I never really had actually even thought about it as courage. It's like it's layer upon layer upon layer of choices you made, uh, of values you have. So um, how do you stand up to a dictator? You hold on to your values. And... You have a lot of data that shows you that you're being insidiously manipulated, right? So knowing that really gave us um, courage to hold our ground. Where'd you get courage from, Maria? I think I always, so how do you become who you are? That's actually the, the, what I went after when I was writing this book, because I, I was worried, deeply worried about how the corruption of our information ecosystem encourages lies, right? Like MIT did this study in 2018 that said lies spread six times faster on social media. So imagine if you're a parent and you tell your child, lie, I'm gonna reward you. Keep lying, I'm gonna keep rewarding you. I mean, what kind of person does the child grow up into? And so that's where it began that in many ways, the tech that we looked at as something that could connect us, unite us, has actually built into its design the the upside turning the way it turned our world upside down, right? Because because if you reward lies, that means you've given a completely different value system. And that corruption has repercussions in everything. So that was the first thought. And then I guess I started thinking about so so why do I stand up for what I think is right? And it came down to like three things. It was stupid, I'm Catholic. I live in Asia's largest Roman Catholic nation. The golden rule was very simple. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If I don't know which direction to go or what to do, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The second one was when I went to school, my school had something called the honor code. Right? Every paper, every test that you had, you write um, that you didn't cheat, but implicit in that is that you would also turn in anyone you see around you cheating. So you're responsible for your world. And then I guess the last one, 
there's so many. Every there are ten chapters, but every chapter has a title. That's the macro, and the subtitle is the personal lesson that I took out of it. But the last one was, oh, I like this from it's chapter ten. Don't become a monster to fight a monster. And how do you do that? Embrace your fear. Because and this is something we've learned in Rappler, right? Like. When, when someone tries to politically harass and intimidate you, how do you stand up? You think through the worst case scenario that could happen, you plan for it, you embrace it, and then the minute you figure out how to deal with it, you take away its sting. That's how values, 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 you know? And, and this is why journalism, there's a mission of journalism that's more important today than ever. The book is uh, dedicated to journalists and citizens who hold the line. What does hold the line mean? Marie? Yeah, it's funny. Uh, when, when President Duterte started attacking Rappler, you don't want to, I'm not an activist by nature and journalists. We've been trained to actually give you the way the world looks in context, even if it goes against us. So. How did we fight back? We fought back by saying, here's the line, that's the rights, our constitution. The Philippine constitution is patterned after the US constitution, right? That's the line defined by the Philippine constitution. And even if, like, essentially the government was using a bulldozer to try to get us to step back off the line, right, to intimidate us, to harass us. And we essentially said, we told our, our, our people and our supporters, we're gonna link arms and we're gonna hold the line. And that's how we protect our rights, because when you voluntarily give up your rights, you're never gonna get them back. You've been quite critical of technology, but there was a time not that long ago when you believed in it. Do you remember that? You know, Andrew Keane uh, wrote this book in 2007, The Cult of the Amateur. And I, we in Rappler believed in the tech so much that, you know, we were living it. And I was like, we just need someone to have a different perspective. And there was Andrew Keane. I never thought that he would be right and we would be wrong. <laughs> well, yes. What, what, right or wrong about what? About tech, right? That ultimately, Rappler began as a Facebook page. You know, if Facebook had had better search, uh, it was called Move PH, Move the Philippines. If Facebook had better search, we may not have built our website, but we did. And the time when, when uh, how, um, the cult of the amateur, when Andrew came to Manila, I was very, Rappler was part of the reason that Facebook's penetration rate in the Philippines is so high. We thought Facebook, we thought social media could be a way to kind of bottom up, uh, lift, hold our government accountable, help the government, right? And he, Andrew had a contrarian view to it. it we were right up until 2016. And then in 2016, that was when the political dominoes began to fall. When political power, both domestic and geopolitical power, began to use the weaknesses of the technology to actually gain power, to insidiously manipulate us. And that's when we, we the advocates of technology, of social media, were then attacked by, on social media. Do you remember the first time you heard the term social media? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, probably. Look, the Philippines is the first adapter to this because um, several reasons. One is our institutions are weak. We have endemic corruption. So, so if you're Filipino and you want something done from your government, you tend to use networks. It depends on who you know and who you know who and who they know. So we move things behind the scenes like an informal economy through social networks. Multiply was actually huge in the Philippines. This is before Facebook, right? Then Facebook exploded in the Philippines. For six years in a row, Filipinos spent the most time online and on social media globally. So when I first heard social media, uh, I, I embraced it because I thought, oh my God. Uh, I'm term, right? Do you remember, was it a year, 2004, 2005? Or was the internet for you always social media? No, I looked at things from social networks. Because I came at this through tracking terrorists. That's, the, that's, the, that's been the most interesting part, right? And I look at social network analysis. Uh, right after 9-11, they would call them link analysis. And then they began to develop social network analysis. Rappler's second CTO, uh, worked with the core lab at the Naval Postgraduate School and what we were interested in is looking at information cascades. Right? So, so the phrase social media would probably have been around, when did I come back? I came back to the Philippines in 2005. So around 2005, 2006, um, Facebook was born in 2004. By that point, Friendster and Multiply ruled the Philippines. The Philippines was also the SMS, the texting capital of the world. We had many revolutions. We organized protest rallies on text, right, before Friendster and Multiply and then Facebook. So social media, I guess, was Facebook. It was Facebook when that happened. And that would have been, I came in as the head of the largest news organization in the Philippines, the end of 2004, the beginning of 2005. And at that point, I was looking at how First, how do you run a traditional news organization? You make it more efficient. So one of the first things we did was, I had an industrial engineer or an industrial engineering student follow every key position of every news, of every news process, the best person in each one. And then we Gantt charted the whole thing. We became very, very efficient. Around 2009, that's really when social media took off. And it was during a typhoon. And we could see calls for help. We could see this was Ondoy, Typhoon Ondoy. We could see that this is going to be a, a massive force. That's when, when we began to, the, this is the largest network, we began to use social media for something academics called participatory media. Right? That, we started something called Botomo y Patrolmo, which is patrol your votes is what it means. And we use social media to do that. It's interesting you bring up terrorism. Uh, a lot of people argue that blogging began with 9-11 and the hysteria around that. Do you remember where you were on 9-11? And, and, and do you remember when you first started hearing about blogging? You began life as a traditional journalist at CNN, a top-down organization. I remained. I mean, I, I, I was for most of my career a corporate broadcaster, right? 
for, with CNN for almost two decades and then with the largest broadcaster in the Philippines. Um, 9-11, I was the Jakarta bureau chief for CNN and I was on a treadmill in Jakarta. And when I saw the planes crash into the building, it was a memory for me because it was in interrogation documents that I had from police in the Philippines of the man who was probably the first pilot recruited by Al-Qaeda. His name was Abdul Hakim Murad. And he was arrested in the Philippines in 1994, connected to a plot to assassinate the Pope and Bill Clinton, right? The first pilot. This man was connected to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the architect of 9-11. His nephew, Ramzi Youssef, after the 1993 failed World Trade Center bombing in the basement, Ramzi Yusuf flew to the Philippines and trained the Abu Sayyaf, which is kind of like a, a terrorist organization. It's designated that by the United States. I call it a kidnap for ransom group, though. Anyway, so they were these were inter entwined in my head. We came back. Uh, once I pulled this interrogation document, we began to look at the people mentioned the cell phones mentioned, and we began a link analysis and a social network analysis of what they did in the Philippines. All of the plots from 2001 to 2002 were detailed in those documents. So they took ideas from six years ago and carried them out. Anyway, so back to your question of blogging. I was a top-down journalist. I was, I opened the Manila Bureau of CNN. I, I was handling the Jakarta Bureau. I was very, very focused on, on making, on making the best stories that I could in in those times. Right. Um, I also Indonesia is the world's largest Muslim population, so the response in Indonesia was fascinating. Also, where I lived there, when I moved back, when I came to the Philippines the next day. I talked to the police chief who interrogated that the Abdul Hakim Murad, the first pilot recruited by Al. Where were you getting your information? Did you go on the blogosphere, or were you reliant on other journalists at the New York Times, Washington Post, no. Financial Times, so this CNN, is, BBC? Well, this is the best part. This was my reporting. Like forever, we we were ahead on exclusive after exclusive because we had the documents right so again CNN then put a unit together that included our justice reporter um, our we had a little al-qaeda unit pulled together during that time it was our reporting and this is part of the reason at that point I didn't take bloggers seriously at all because frankly running after this and unraveling it was this was an incredible an incredible experience Having said that, part of what drew me to that time period was also understanding how the virulent ideology that powered Al-Qaeda and its arm in Southeast Asia, it's called Jamaat Islamiyah, how they could convince a young boy to become a suicide bomber, how that virulent ideology spreads. And what's fascinating today is the that ideology that, that pushed extremism, that pushed terrorism, is similar now. It seems to have infiltrated our political sphere. It isn't just radicalization uh, for terrorist tactics. Now it's radicalization of the political environment. Very similar tactics. Maria, you mentioned that you believed in the social media revolution, democratization, and all the rest of it that people were arguing uh, and 
first decade of the 21st century. Did you, in the beginning of the Arab Spring, were you very optimistic that there would be profound change? I was a true believer. You know, I, at that point, had just, I was leaving ABS-CBN, the largest network, and I was, I actually thought that this technology could jumpstart development in the Philippines, right? Because the biggest problem as a, as a journalist, what are you following? You follow the money, whether it's terrorism or corruption. And the biggest problem of almost every story we've done is corruption. So top down, how do you fight that when it's the government? You can keep exposing it, but how can you build? How can you build? And I thought, oh my God, this technology will allow us to actually be able to not just hold government accountable, but to have participatory media. And what we did inside the largest broadcaster, you know, when we called our citizens, citizen journalism, we literally rolled that out. If you're the top broadcaster in your country and you roll it out and you bring them in and you train them, we had 20,000 citizen journalists. And during elections, we would be getting photos of officials using vehicles that they shouldn't be using because it's, it's the states, right? So I, I believed technology could jumpstart our development. And it could have if the tech companies hadn't been so greedy. How intimately do you connect social media and the Arab Spring? Gezi Square, Tahrir Square, Tunisia. This is where, the Arab Spring is where uh, my interest, my like obsession with looking at terrorist networks and governance kind of came in together, right? Like when I was looking at the Twitter maps of the Arab Spring, you could literally see how these organizations that had never worked together before began to work together. Student organizations with other civil society groups. and you can see how a leaderless revolution would take over. It's very, very different from what you saw in, in Syria, if you map the Twitter map of Syria at that point, right? They were still very isolated. Egypt, I thought, was like, oh my God, this is a leaderless movement. This is like exactly what you would want for civic engagement. What I didn't think, what I couldn't imagine was, what if it's the government that uses that against its people? What if it's the government that takes its vast resources and uses it to insidiously manipulate the public sphere? That's what I couldn't imagine. So yes, the Arab Spring had, a, had an immense impact on, on the way I looked at media and the role of social media. After looking at that, so 2011, this is part of the reason we set up Rapport. The second part of your book focuses on the period between 2005 and 2017. You don't talk, though, in the second part about the rise of social media or social networks. You talk about the rise of Facebook. There was, of course, Twitter, uh, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, many other social media companies. What is it about Facebook that makes it so central to your narrative and your understanding of social media? Sure. Uh, Facebook is the world's largest distributor of news. But beyond that, if you look at the Philippines, 
uh, around that time period, Facebook was almost 90, 97% of Filipinos on the internet are on Facebook. So Facebook is our internet. That's one. Two, Twitter, 7% penetration rate. Barely enough to pay. But why, do, why were we on Twitter? Uh, because that's where newsmakers were. That's where journalists were. That's how we connected to the rest of the world. But for Filipinos, it was Facebook. Uh, Instagram was much later. And it didn't have the same impact. Facebook was what was weaponized. And if I was running Facebook at that time period, you can see it, right? So part of what went wrong was that despite the data that was available to anyone, it was available to us and we were watching it, right? Despite the data, nothing was done to stop the impunity. And that impunity further corroded the information ecosystem. You talk about something called the internet black hole. Yeah. Black holes are sometimes not as visible as they could be or should be. When did you begin to understand? Is there a date, Maria, where you began to understand that the internet was, perhaps in itself, a black hole? Yeah, series of discoveries, but the date... So, in August 2016, um, Rappler began hashtag no place for hate. Because we thought then we were so naive. We thought they were people that were just being mean to each other, right? Which is what most people think. And so we began hashtag no place for hate in August 2016. And all of a sudden we got deluged. That still didn't convince me, right? But that's when we began to realize, oh my gosh, this is like a lot. And it's not normal. Um, but when we did our three-part weaponization of the internet series. I wrote two of the three parts. My co-founder, Chai Hofelenia, wrote the third. Tracking, uh, I'll go back to the third, but you know, after we published that, I was attacked with an average of 90, 90 hate messages per hour. You can't even respond to that. And because I thought it was still real people, so at the beginning, I was trying to respond and make an argument. It wasn't about that. It was about pounding you to silence, right? So when I realized that was the case, I was like, this is information warfare. This is information operations. What's the date? When October 9th, 2016. We published our first story October 3rd. By October 9th, I was getting 90 hate messages per hour. It was a Sunday night, and I sat down, and I was being targeted, and I was trying to respond. And at some point, it was coming so fast, all I could do was count. And we continued. That continued. So this is something completely new. And when I brought this to Facebook, Facebook said, oh, but Maria, you're a public figure. No. <laughs> no. That's where safety issues come in. And I think that's where Facebook has been wrong and has been forced to step up. Having said that, with Elon Musk lowering the bar, Facebook has as well. So this means more difficult times ahead. You end the book uh, with a chapter announcing why fascism is winning. I do want to get to that, but shouldn't your own story of a woman standing up to a dictator, and in a sense winning, um, winning the Nobel Prize, isn't that reason to be, if not cheerful, cautiously optimistic, Maria? Hmm. 
I, you know, in 2019, I had eight arrest warrants in a little over three months. By the by 2020, I had been convicted, so I had 10 arrest warrants uh, by then. No, not yet. I don't know whether this is, you know, coming out of into the light. I still have, of those 10 criminal charges, there are two left, including one that could send me to prison for, for almost seven years, and other another that could, depending on these cases, the way they go, decades still, right? And then there's a third case that could shut us down any day, right? So that's a Damocles sword hanging over our heads. Uh, I don't know whether this is, uh, I don't know whether this is the calm before the storm. Because in the end, the world is so uncertain, the tech changing so fast, which ultimately then winds up changing each of us, right? The impact of this technology is personal, societal because we behave differently in groups and actually I would even push forward I would love to see studies done on emergent human behavior uh, in the Nobel lecture I talked about how this toxic sludge that's being fed into our veins is pushing the worst of humanity this is not who we are and yet that is the incentive structure so I if you look at the patterns and trends um, Videm in Sweden said last year, 60% of the world is under authoritarian rule. I thought, okay, well that's 60% that includes the largest countries. But then this year in January, they changed that number to 72%. So then this year we started counting how many elections are gonna be, are we gonna have this year and into 2024? There were 90, 90 elections, right? But 2024 is a crucial year because when you look at that, you're going to have Taiwan. That's China is the other geopolitical. You have Russia, China. Okay, so Taiwan, Indonesia, the world's largest Muslim population in February. You have the EU, potentially Canada, uh, the UK, uh, and of course the United States. If these patterns don't change, if the insidious manipulation continues, if you add generative AI and how easy and cheap it will be to create lies, lies that spread six times faster on these social media platforms, we will lose democracy. I feel like this is that our final sprint. We have to do something about it now. And so, so there's stuff, all the other things. I guess what, I, what I'm, it, it is the Nobel Prize is a recognition of for all journalists, it's been a tough ride. Every, the World Press Freedom Index shows you that over the last decade, journalists have had to sacrifice more. In the Philippines, um, it's harassment, it's jail, it's deaths. Uh, so. Someone died yesterday, we're in Manila right now. Talk about uh, chilling of Siberia. Talk about Siberia. More lawyers have been killed in the Philippines than journalists. How do you even get someone to defend you, right? So, so it, it isn't even, I don't know if we're completely, we're not out of the woods yet. And if democracy dies, what happens to us, right? It's, there's, this is it, we gotta do something. And for you, fascism is winning, not just in Russia and China and Iran, 
and perhaps the Philistines, but also in your view in the United States, in the United Kingdom, in Italy, in France? How it's the rise of the far right, and you can call it a lot of different names, but when you begin to lose your rights, when you are pushed off the line that guarantees your constitutional rights in a democracy, then we have problems, right? And we've been through this before. I mean, maybe two or three years ago, I started reading all the books about the rise of Nazi Germany. This is part of what I put in the Nobel lecture. You know, one of the things that happened after the atom bomb exploded, and I compared tech to the atom bomb, what the design of tech companies and the way they've corrupted our information ecosystem, turning lies into facts, shredding our shared reality. I compared that to an atom bomb exploding and how today we need an international reaction similar to the creation of the United Nations, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And yet we're still here. <laughs> it's extremely frustrating. Our time is running out. So we really are, as, uh, as Christopher Nolan, the director of Oppenheimer, suggested, we're at an Oppenheimer moment when it comes to tech, to AI, and social media. Look at generative AI, right? Generative AI, so if the first contact with AI, with social media, which is really algorithms, and an algorithm, opinion in code, right? That isn't my definition, but it's just someone's opinion replicated millions of times by the machine. Right? So the first time that happened, what was weaponized? How was our biology hacked so we could be manipulated? It was using fear, anger, hate. Generative AI pretends, seems to be a human, a friend. It speaks to you. What is it set to weaponize? What, have, what trends are we starting to see? That looks like it's going to weaponize loneliness, which is in, in every single human being, right? So this is, there's a lot of work to be done. There are no guardrails on tech. This is the least regulated industry. And it isn't about speech. It's about safety. Finally, Maria, uh, you and I have both written books about the future, and your subtitle of, of your new book, How to Stand Up to a Dictator, is the fight for our future. My last book was called How to Fix the Future. Can the future ever be fixed, or is that the wrong way of thinking about it? Should we be thinking about the future as open-ended? I think of the future as something that is being created by what we do now. And it's part of what we do in Rappler, right? We look at we look at what we are doing. I mean, tech does this. Tech does this in an iterative manner. They roll something out, they do another two-week sprint, and then they roll it out again. And depending on how each of us reacts to it, they'll adjust again. Well, we are creating our future right now. What we choose to do, what we choose not to do. And if we look away at such a crucial moment, it will be decided for us. Power and money, right? That's really what, where I, I, I came down in the book. Everything has been about power and money, but journalists and the public could hold power to account. In the old days, name and shame could work. That is impossible in today's information ecosystem.